Welcome to the Lone Star Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Williams. Gramps is taking the week off this week as we move into the end of January. He's having a little bit of, I want to say major health issues. He's having minor health issues. He's got some allergies. It's kind of kicking his butt. And his nose is running like a track star right now, supposedly. Our guest this week is Joy Beckerman of Hemp Ace. How are you doing, Joy? So great and so wonderful to be here, Jesse. You're in you're in the Seattle area, correct? I am. I, I can work from anywhere in the world, but my home base is here in Seattle. What's the weather up there like right now? You know, I think we're at about 42 degrees and you'll be shocked to hear that it's cloudy. I would, I'm not shocked. I'm not shocked about being cloudy. Exactly. I'm, I'm more shocked. You're like, it's not raining. It's not raining this moment. I'll qualify that. I had to ask then, like, is it snow often in your area or is just being a city? It's not. Yeah, no, Seattle, we're in an interesting spot. I mean, we've got incredible world-class skiing an hour away, but here in Seattle, we're in sort of a valley, I would say, and we barely ever get snow. And when we do, it's it pretty much shuts things down. I mean, I was raised in Maine. You, life goes on in a blizzard, right? But here in Seattle, we don't have any plows. We sold them to Oregon some years ago, and we do not use salt for protecting the salmon. So the whole thing shuts down, brother. And it's a very hilly city. Interesting stuff. And you mentioned you mentioned being in the Northeast, and I saw reading through Hemp Base that you had been in New York in the 90s. What what prompted the move for you to be from the Northeast to the Northwest? Ah, thank you so much for asking. Well, I was raised in the Northeast uh, and then opened the first hemp store in the state of New York in the early 90s and, and then went actually to Vermont because in 1996, an inaugural hemp bill was passed in Vermont for research with books, not actual planting. But the Vermont Hemp Council was formed out of that piece of legislation, and I was um, appointed by Representative Maslach to serve as secretary of the Vermont Hemp Council and served in that position until 1998, which is when the state of Washington legalized medical uh, cannabis. And also my children, who are now 28 and 30 with master's degrees and on their own, but they were, you know, needing a little more money and resources. And so we moved to the Seattle area uh, for some wonderful opportunities and legal support. And, and frankly, it was a it is a very friendly place for the environment, for cannabis and for single mothers, which I was at the time. I've got to check out the Northwest. Like I lived up in upstate New York for about seven months back in Where? 2007. Uh, Saratoga Springs out near oh. the horse track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Love you know it. about that. We used to joke about it. was like, it's an affordable town, but for like a month out of the year, there's cars driving down the road that are worth more than any house we've ever bought in our life. <laughs> It's very fascinating. Absolutely. I had actually two home births. I birthed both of my, both of my sons at home in upstate New York, right in that uh, county. So one in Galway, New York, and one in Albany, New York. So I, I love SPAC. And yeah. of course, many Grateful Dead shows at SPAC. Yeah, SPAC. The, <laughs> the springs out there. Yeah, I saw plenty of concerts at SPAC. And, the and you mentioned Albany. Yeah, driving down to Albany to just be like something different for once. And then yes. you drive the other direction, you're in the mountains, and you're like, oh, I'm going to get out of here. I'm, I'm lost. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's fascinating, too, because when you say New York, people just think Manhattan. And indeed, oh, yeah. of the 19 million people in New York, 10 million of them are in Manhattan. But it's a huge, huge and beautiful state with lots of ag lands and mountains, as you well know. 
and we're on, we're obviously we're we, we're here to talk about cannabis and agriculture. What blows my mind, I don't think people realize, is that New York has a lot of dairy industry to it. Like they're very big about dairy. Absolutely. There's a lot of agriculture that goes on. I mean, I, I think, frankly, New York would be a red state if not for Manhattan. It is. There's a lot of land there that is used for the food supply. So how did how did you get into hemp? Of all things, being in the Northeast, moving the Northwest, how did how did you land on this plant? You're like, this is this is my path. This is the thing, right? Well, I love this question because I really, it was, we're going to thank the Grateful Dead. I mean, I, I give so much thanks for that. I was a young girl, 20 years old in 1990, now dating myself. Um, and I received a flyer at one of my very first Grateful Dead shows in Foxborough, Massachusetts. And it discussed this incredible plant um, that has a, a chance of, of healing the environment, that has this incredibly deep, rich history, not just in the United States, but globally and around the world, and that this potential solution uh, to get us out of this inevitable demise of planetary killing uh, would, is a felon, <laughs> felony um, just to possess a seed capable of germination and certainly to plant that seed. And I I didn't, it was, it was frankly, a, it was an excerpt from Jack Harris, The Emperor Wears No Clothes. Uh, so grateful for that. And it, it was an interesting sort of harmonic convergence that day, because I thought as a young woman, we're, we're all going to kill ourselves and we're going to kill the planet, but we certainly have a duty to treat each other well and peace, love and music, you know, as we move into certain death. And that's basically was my view of the world. Get, get the mileage out of the planet while we got it. Yep, exactly. And and just be as good of a person as you can. And uh, so that really, it, it spoke to a, a sense of planetary healing. It spoke to a sense of justice. Um, it it basically connected with me on a cellular level, brother. And it, it severely altered the trajectory of my whole life. Let's see, for me, in the military and seeing when spice became a big thing. And I, saw, I was like, this is obviously not good, but I saw that there were so many people gravitating towards it. And the vast majority, despite all the horror stories, were seeing some sort of benefit, at least psychologically, stress relief. And as I started to get out in 2012, I saw it as like, well, you know, perhaps there's something here. I'm not being bound by the military anymore to not do this. Let me try this. Okay, I'm just gonna give this give oh, this wow. a shot and see uh, how this works. I tried it once too, but uh. <laughs> I tried it once, once. <laughs> the guy That's from Johnny Dangerously. Mean. I did it once. Yeah. Once. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting, and I I would never really want to put the Delta eight sort of um, proliferation of products on the market. I, I would never say that that's an apples to apples comparison with spice, but similarly, oh, no. when we are not in uh, you know, a legal state where there is not safe and legal access uh, to this far healthier form of libation, celebration, relaxation, and or medicine, depending on what you're using it for, um, then folks are going to make themselves they're going to avail themselves of of the products that are available to them and so that's where spice came in 
And, and that is where Delta 8 um, in many ways is also coming in. And these other what I will call novel cannabinoids, although oh, yeah. I don't call them cannabinoids at all, which you're very well aware of that HHC, THCO, et cetera, et cetera. Not really cannabinoids. There's a phrase that my wife Joyce and I have about why situations like this come around. And it is innov- uh, necessity is the mother of innovation. <laughs> It's like that's things, things been around, that's for sure. And it's one of those things of things get created because there's a problem and they see a need to solve this problem. Mm-hmm. And with this market, it was like, well, we've got all this CBD. Um, people want access to this, this other cannabinoid or a series of cannabinoids that we can legally make now. Mm-hmm. How about we find a way? We come up, we innovate a way to get this glut of excess off the market and into people's hands and, it's, and have it be something they want. Delta eight came out of that. It's like where there's a need, people will find a way. It's so true. It's so true. And we will not go down the rabbit hole of, you know, when we say the word legal, right? There's sort of rabbit ears and quotation marks around that because indeed, as you're very well aware, my astute brother, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has confirmed 10 ways from Sunday that that actual true molecule, that at isomer of tetrahydrocannabinol that we know as delta-8 tetrahydrocannabinol or delta-8 THC. Indeed, it is legal as the day in law as long until there is some type of a legislative change at the federal level. And of course, multiple states that have already created, regulated it out or, or defined it. But at the federal level, we know that that isomer itself is truly legal. I think the issue here is that we're not actually seeing that real molecule Delta-8 with all the peaks that is in a naturally occurring Delta-8 molecule. We're seeing this sort of bathtub gin, Frankenstein um, isomerization using volatile chemicals and solvents. And, and in the end, we're not actually getting, in for the by and large in these products, a true Delta-8. And then secondary to that is, of course, if we're using it in a dietary supplement or as a food additive, it's not actually legal, right? Because we've got this regulatory framework for introducing a new dietary ingredient for dietary supplements and for introducing a food additive in the food supply. And as it stands, ain't a single cannabinoid yet out of the cannabis plant uh, that has been able to make it through that framework. Good tee up for the crazy press release today. But so it's interesting. We say, yes, the true isomer is legal, but the products that are out there on the market, by and large, are actually technically not from a federal level. But the FDA is only enforcing when absolutely necessary. And you brought that up. And I was like, man, this is the perfect point to talk about the FDA announcing today that they're like, we're not going to create a regulation for this. Congress, we punt the ball back to you. Yes. Yes, and it's really fascinating because there have already been, um, you know, there are about four different bills right now in Congress in play. One of them since uh, 2021, the one that has really the most viable chance of making it through, directing the FDA to create a regulatory framework. Now, the four different bills have different nuances, and I I don't want to make everybody's eyes go glossy discussing them. But I will say, because it's so important, that that the main difference is, is one of these bills seeks only to have CBD itself, the one cannabinoid, cannabidiol, to be put into the food supply. Another one is the one molecule CBD, cannabidiol, to be put into the um, 
food and dietary supplement supply. And then one, the one that I think has the most viable chance of winning, and it was all of the, the existing dietary supplement trade associations working on this with the U.S. Hemp Roundtable. And that's the one that is asking all hemp-derived cannabinoids, not just CBD, because we're just going to keep going through all this craziness, yeah. cannabinoid by cannabinoid, if we don't deal with it. Um, and just for dietary supplements. And there's lots of reasons for that, mostly cutting to the chase, because the FDA is, I can almost guarantee, and please don't shoot the messenger, ever going to approve CBD for food and beverages. If, if they're going to create a regulatory framework, it will most likely be only for dietary supplements. And then, of course, there's that CAOA, which is, I think, the <laughs> Cannabis Administration Opportunity Act. Um, and that's Really interesting and scary as heck. That, again, is just CBD as well um, and just for dietary supplements. But it's way scary. We, we want um, the one that's just for dietary supplements and all hemp-derived ingredients to pass. So in any event, this has been going on. And we've had multiple state departments of ag. We've had multiple senior legislators, including Mitch McConnell himself, um, admonishing and several state governors and even state's attorney general, Jesse, over this period of time that have been submitting letters to the FDA, really expressing their deep concern and their huge frustration that they have not created a regulatory framework. And today, just today, they announced on their press release that they have come to a conclusion, bearing in mind that we have been in an open sort of rulemaking period with the FDA oh, yeah. uh, since 2019. And they have been collecting, they've been commissioning their own safety studies and they've been collecting safety studies from during that public comment period, which I'm wondering if it's about to be closed. It's been open this entire time, a number of years, unbelievable. But today they finally came to a conclusion and their conclusion is we do not have enough data to create a regulatory framework. And so we're not going to. Um, and this is the interesting part. We think we need an entirely new regulatory framework for CBD. And there's lots of mixed feelings around that, brother. On the one hand, yeah. we've got, you know, industry saying, you don't need a new regulatory framework. We have a regulatory framework for dietary supplement new ingredients and for new food additives in the food and beverage supply for quality, for consistency, for safety. Just plug us into that. And there's a whole nother school of thought, which is frankly just as valid and, and some would argue even more so. And that is that whole plant medicine. And when we say CBD, we're not talking about whole plant medicine. We're talking about an isolated pharmaceutical, highly refined. And bear in mind, this is what the FDA is used to in drugs and food additives. It needs a lot of science. You've got to refine it and bastardize it and pull out that molecule out of this beautiful whole plant. And that's how the whole regulatory framework sort of exists, particularly for, for drugs and dietary supplements. And what cannabis is doing here is saying, but we're not that. We really can't fit into your existing framework. Yeah. And believe me, the Dr. Sue Sisleys of the world and those really doing research and spending lots of resources trying to do research on this plant, she too would sit here and say to you, I'm sorry, guys, I think you need to create an entire new framework for whole plant medicine. Well, there's, and there's a bit to discuss about that that 
I, I think I could probably add into, and we'll go over that. We're going to go into our sponsor break. So we're going to continue this discussion because it's, it's important. It's important that we discuss these types of things and get people in a position where they understand what's going on and why it's happening. So we're going to go into our sponsor break here at the Lone Star Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Williams. My guest this week is Joy Beckerman of Hemp Ace. We'll be right back after our sponsor break. Cultivators is a sponsor of Texas Cannabis Collective and the Lone Star Collective podcast. Oak Cliff focuses on quality assurance with their hemp products while providing customer service to help you discover cannabinoids to meet your needs. Their product line includes hemp flour, pre-rolls, CBG tinctures, edibles, Delta Eat, and merch. For more information on their product's quality or to shop online today, visit oakcliffcultivators.com or contact them at info at oakcliffcultivators.com. Thrive Apothecary offers an experience truly unique from anything else in Texas, a full-service cannabis solution that is doctor-owned and offers customers every level of cannabis legally available in Texas. From traditional CBD products to emerging hemp-derived THC edibles, smokables, and now medical cannabis. As a licensed medical cannabis provider, prospective patients from anywhere in Texas can book a sponsored online eligibility consultation to determine if they qualify for a medical marijuana prescription from the comfort of their own home. Plus, for Texas veterans, the first prescription appointment is donated by Thrive. Visit thrivetx.com for more information. Welcome back to the Lone Star Collective Podcast, the official podcast of Texas Cannabis Collective. Distributed on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, and much more to give Texans information regarding policy, industry, and culture. Here is this week's host, Jesse Williams and Gramps. Welcome back to the Lone Star Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Williams. This week, my guest is Joy Beckerman of Hemp Ace International. We were discussing about the FDA punting the ball back to Congress about this thing. And they were saying, like, the, 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 it's a very generic phrase. And they say, we need more data. And in our community, everybody's been screaming, we have the data. We know. We know what this plant's capable of. And it's not so much now, I would say, that we need data about what the plant is capable of. I have a feeling that when they say we need more data, it's like you talked about having, I, you imagine somebody like Sue Sisley saying, hey, you know, we, we need something beyond just this data about how it affects people, but we need data on how we're going to regulate this, like the framework for it. Cannabis does not fit in the way other things typically do. And part of that is, we, you mentioned earlier, and I've had this discussion is that when you start talking about converting and creating these isomers and things of that nature, it becomes some of that stuff we don't know. Like we don't have a lot of studies about Delta eight. We researched it, what, in the late sixties and then stopped. We have no studies on even rodents. I mean, like we certainly don't have humans and, 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 you know, we, we have to demonstrate safety, right? 
but this and this is just specific to CBD, which is its own thing, right? Because CBD is already an approved drug. So there's a whole nother statute that is causing trouble. But we we don't need to explore that here. But every single one, every single cannabinoid, any substance, any substance at all, it doesn't matter if it's from cannabis or not. It could be from a dandelion plant if it's uh, if it's something that isn't doesn't meet the definition of an old dietary ingredient. If it doesn't meet the definition of an ODI or old dietary ingredient, it meets the definition of an NDI or new dietary ingredient. And that what's the difference between old and new? Well, there's a date. October 15th, 1994. And that's when DSHEA, the Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act, was enacted. So anything that was already in the food supply or being marketed somehow as a dietary supplement, you know, prior to that date, that's an ODI. If it if it's marketed and introduced after that date, it's an NDI, and therefore it is subject to the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act for new dietary ingredients. And that's a very expensive, you know, process to, to undergo, but it's because of safety. And, and I just wanted to elaborate that data, that very data that you're speaking about and what the FDA has been railing on is we don't have enough data on safety. And so when you were saying we have the data, we have that, that's when you heard me say, we sure do. We actually have all the data on safety. It has been proven to the FDA 10 ways from Sunday. And that's where the frustration comes, brother, because they are continuing the entire time to beat the drug right through today saying, hey, we just don't have enough data to see how long you can take CBD and how much because we're getting, you know, we think that it causes liver problems, contraindications with other medications, which sure it can, as many dietary supplements can have contraindications. So you have to put a warning on the label. That's the law. Um, They also say we think it might affect male reproductive, which I think is the subliminal, you know, plant the, oh, it's going to harm male reproduction, fear mongering in there and then vulnerable populations. And they immediately go to children. Of course, it was child Charlotte Figgy that started this entire awareness and uh, and pregnant women. Um, so they just keep talking about safety, 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 and it has been proven. And, and the last piece around that sort of frustration that even officials feel, James Comer, who was the director, and you probably know this, of the Kentucky Department of Ag way back in 2014, who pushed through legalization of hemp cultivation, the first state in 2014, got those first seeds in the ground. Well, now he's a representative. And he is chair of that new house oversight committee. So all political comments aside, we're just talking hemp here. Um, He is actually has opened up an investigation into the FDA and why they are stalling so much. So I actually think, and that's brand new news. I think this press release today was sort of doing, trying to do something to protect themselves from the house oversight committee investigating them because brother, this just so stinks of big pharma, you know, special interests. It is stinky, stinky, stinky stuff. Well, something, and I think when they say data, it's, I don't want to say it's a misdirection, but an issue that's going to happen, regardless of what framework they put in place, is there's going to be mountains of litigation taking place where somebody goes, well, I didn't think we could do that, or I didn't think we could do this, or this shouldn't have happened this way, or you can't advertise it this way, or you can't advertise it that way. Uh, in the past, we couldn't do this with these products, and you're saying we can with these. Well, why not? Why is there such a stark difference between these two? And as we saw with the Delta 8 case, 
the answer in the end was they said, if this was to be outlawed, it's something Congress should have done. Congress holds that responsibility. And the FDA basically sees that now and goes, you know what? No matter what we do, it's a lose-lose for us. There is no winning solution we can come up with. And anytime something happens, a court's going to point at us and say, well, they should have done this. And we go, we, what? What do you mean we should have done this? Congress should have done this. Congress should have made these rules and regulations. That way they would be actual laws in place. You don't like it. Blame Congress. And they can get away with saying, well, we don't know. We need data. Yeah. And everybody focuses on that first part where it's like, well, the safety, safety, safety. Because, man, safety causes such a great moral panic, doesn't it? Oh, I, it's fear-mongering extraordinaire. And the, the subliminal, as I like to say, root chakra. Male reproductive system, breastfeeding. They like to get sort of boobs and private parts in there to really get into your psyche and social engineer you a bit. So the children, we got to worry about the children. And it's like, you know, I'm concerned about children. There's a solution. We do it with other products. We age gate. It doesn't need a knee jerk reaction of just removing the product from the market. We age gate. So it's, it's funny. I was like, like I said, it's a, it creates a moral panic of the children are delicate. Okay. Age gate it. Why is that difficult? And we're seeing that in Texas, Texas. Like I point out my fear is that they say we want, they, they want to get rid of Delta eight. Our legislature does overall. Mm-hmm. Well, at least a good chunk do. And it becomes this problem of the way they want to do it is they say, well, we're going to ban synthetics. And it's like, okay, well, federal side, they have their own definition for synthetic, which we saw Delta eight does not apply in that situation. And then there's Texas, which our department of state health services will determine the definition of synthetic for our state on a state level. Mm-hmm. And they'll eventually say, well, anytime you did any sort of mechanical change to it or you did a chemical change, we're going to consider that a synthetic. And they can't get through their heads yet. That it's like, that means your CBD isolates are gone. They're outlawed. All any sort of isolate whatsoever is gone. The fact that you would actually remove anything from the plant, anything outside a whole plant coming out of the ground would technically be illegal if they follow that type of logic. You know, I think it's more about isolate isn't, isn't a synthesization. Now that's a refinement, but it's not a chemical change, brother. You're not changing the CBD molecule. It's if you isomerize that molecule, you change it from CBD to Delta eight or CBD to Delta nine, which all of that can be done, of course, or. And and that's federal, federal side. They see it as such. They go, yeah, you've just taken one part out and that's it. You've isolated it. We don't care. Texas wants to follow this weird definition of synthetic being defined as, did you do anything mechanical to it or any through, through any chemical process whatsoever? So if you chemically isolated it, they went up that synthetic. Did you, did, did you even mash the plant? Did you, did you press it and take oil out of it? Yeah. Mechanical change. It's a synthetic. And it's like, you're going to kill the whole market doing this. I'd have to look at the legislation. Unfortunately, the, these legislative sessions, they're just the bane of my existence slash a big part of my purpose um, because there is so much crazy over legislation being written. And then I'm constantly having to get in there and beg the prime sponsors and whoever I have access to, if not them, you know, to make amendments that make sense. And it's, you know, and I, I will have to look at any new proposed uh, legislation for Texas. But I, I also just want to make sure, you know, when you say 
you know, it doesn't meet the definition of synthetic under that scenario referring to the feds, bear in mind. So the DEA has what they consider to be synthetic, a whole nother area of law and different code. But the FDA, and this is where what we're talking about when we're talking about human consumption, controlled substances aside, they also have what they call synthetic botanical constituents. They actually have a nickname for it, the FDA, called SINBOTS. And synthetic botanical constituents, they don't meet the definition as an ingredient for a dietary supplement. So they're at, if you, to the extent we're making, you know, not inhalables out of this Delta-8, which is its own thing, but something we would market as a dietary supplement. Also, um, it hasn't been proven for safety for the food additive because of this isomerization. So it's really, there's lots of folks, Texas is not alone, as you know, brother, in-, in Oh yeah, we're not. We gotta deal with intoxicating cannabinoids and we gotta deal with synthetic cannabinoids. And I have seen every which way to deal with it. I have to say that Washington State, my own- um, Washington state, I think is, has some really good ideas on how to do that. And I wish all the states would talk with each other, but they're not, which is why this whole thing is making, it's been a nightmare for interstate commerce for companies that want to sell outside of their state. As many do right now, it would, you know, require, I don't know how many labels. Um, and so we're, this is guaranteed to just continue to be crazy like this. And, and if Texas outlaws stuff that makes it, you know, I it just we, we want to be able to see success for our farmers, see success oh, yeah. for all small, all small businesses. And this is crazy. That's true. <laughs> Very much. <laughs> no, no, no other way to put it. It's true. So we hear the music. It's time to, for us to go into our sponsor break. We're going to continue talking about this and how this, these legalization measures, I'd say they, they impact outside not just each state but outside our country as well because there's something i learned over the winter my little winter break i got to take so great we we come back from our sponsor break the lone star collective podcast i'm your host jesse williams i'm joined by guest joy beckerman of hemp ace international this week we'll be right back after our sponsor messages is a sponsor of Texas Cannabis Collective and the Lone Star Collective Podcast. Oak Cliff focuses on quality assurance with their hemp products while providing customer service to help you discover cannabinoids to meet your needs. Their product line includes hemp flour, pre-rolls, CBG tinctures, edibles, Delta Eat, and Merge. For more information on their product's quality or to shop online today, visit oakcliffcultivators.com or contact them at info at oakcliffcultivators.com. Thrive Apothecary offers an experience truly unique from anything else in Texas, a full-service cannabis solution that is doctor-owned and offers customers every level of cannabis legally available in Texas. From traditional CBD products to emerging hemp-derived THC edibles, smokables, and now medical cannabis. As a licensed medical cannabis provider, prospective patients from anywhere in Texas can book a sponsored online eligibility consultation to determine if they qualify for a medical marijuana prescription from the comfort of their own home. Plus, for Texas veterans, the first prescription appointment is donated by Thrive. Visit thrivetx.com for more information. Welcome back. 
back to the Lone Star Collective podcast, the official podcast of Texas Cannabis Collective. Distributed on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, Facebook, and much more, to give Texans information regarding policy, industry, and culture. Here is this week's host, Jesse Williams and Gramps. Welcome back to the Lone Star Collective Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Williams. I'm joined by guest Joy Beckerman of Hemp Ace International this week. We've been discussing this fiasco of an FDA punteroo. <laughs> I'll start calling it. Just a punt, but it's a punt, punt festival, punt the ball back and forth between, no, you guys do this. No, you guys do it. But uh, we were discussing right before we started the show about how um, I'd went to Mexico at the end of December and something that was interesting, I don't think I talked about it on my first show back from the break, is that um, we get to Mexico, we went out to Sonora and went down to a place called Puerto Penasco, mm-hmm. uh, Playa Hermosa Beach. It's a, kind of a touristy area. There's two, technically two separate parts of town. There's one where it's really high-end resort. And we stayed over in like what used to be like, I would consider like the old tourist area, the old town. And my wife, who's from Puerto Rico, goes out and is walking around and sees a shore patrol military member from the Mexican military and starts asking questions about like, hey, what do we do if this happens? How do we do this? And she's able to communicate because obviously she speaks Spanish natively. And the first question that comes out of this shore patrol member's mouth is, oh, you guys are from Texas. Why haven't you legalized weed yet in your state? <laughs> and she's like, that's what you're going to ask me. So, like, yeah, why haven't you legalized weed? Um, every one of these states, you know, it's like Arizona, which you likely drove it to get into here. They legalized and so has Nevada and California and New Mexico. Why haven't you guys? And it's just like, our state's just kind of backwards. And immediately this person points out every time one of these states falls into legalization, it hurts the cartel here. They lose money, they lose funding. And we've been able to start winning the war against the cartels here and start squashing them out as each state falls. The illicit market funds organized crime i mean you know i used to also sit on the board of directors for the national organization of the reform of marijuana laws normal i mean and that's that's i probably since year one when it was formed in 1970 when the controlled substances act you know was was enacted or or ratified um yeah that the illicit market absolutely is a cash cow for fueling and empowering exponentially organized crime and violence. And we had a DA here where I live at in Austin, Texas, that was trying to point out somehow that it's like, oh, well, the belief is that if it's legalized, you're just giving them more money. <laughs> it was like, how? They make the money off of it being illegal. Well, your leadership thinks otherwise. And so do the police officers. I'm like, do you, I'm kind of, we're kind of thinking like, well, do you think otherwise? Because it seems like you think so as well. The reality is, is if there's competition here that can legally compete and not have to worry about the government getting involved in that sort of matter, they would it would just push them out of the market. 
and it became painfully obvious hearing that over during my vacation. I was like, it is definitely painfully obvious now in this state, without a doubt, that the reason why it's still illegal is that it keeps the cartel just strong enough for them to point and go, boogeyman. We got to do something about the boogeyman. So much so, brother. And and there are really, you know, so many reasons for it. I think that, and, and the other piece that really can't go without saying is overregulated, overtaxed legal programs, whether in the medical market, we're here in my state of Washington, where we have had legal medical since 1998, legal adult use since 2012. So we're going, we're a decade now. And to this day, since adult use, that created tax. We didn't have tax on the medical up until that time. Our patients here are qualified patients registered in a database, are paying 37% excise tax. So, of course, they're not accessing the market. We have a, a bill this year, thank God, to try to remove that um, and incentivize medically compliant products, incentivize stores to carry those products, and incentivize patients to access the legal market, which they by and large cannot afford to pay. So in any event, whenever there's an overtaxation, which we clearly suffer from here in really up and down the West Coast, but in Washington, it's crazy, that is going to still fuel the illicit market. And so I'm going to use that D word we talked about. We now surely have the data um, yeah. that, that discusses this. And, and it's why New York, you know, they continue to impress me. Uh, New York, which currently has the most progressive, economically equitable, they've left some folks out, the vets, the native tribes, but they have, they're on to a really good thing. And I think they're going to keep, keep improving it, but that's, that tax will do it now. And the other thing, when we talk about Texas or, or maybe some other more conservative or red states, if I could, and I, I'm not to have a political conversation, but what I'll say is that, you know, if we're, if we don't have rights in a certain state, really some sort of basic rights, access to reasonable abortion, um, you know, if, we, if we're not suffering from racism and, and draconian, antiquated, separatist, discriminatory ways and practices, it's hard to go from zero to 60 right on into cannabis legalization. I think part, oh, I know. Sure. Yeah, part of what cannabis's message is, we got to take care of each other. We need to learn empathy and compassion for each other, for the planet, for all living beings. And so I think a lot of states that don't have adult use or or viable, meaningful medical, um, I think that I'm, I'm hoping, and as I spoke about went on stage when I saw you at the Taste of Texas Hemp Cup, that we can get people really interested as we galvanize the cannabis community that is so powerful and enthusiastic and the most incredible humans there in Texas, that we can galvanize that same community to support other movements and other efforts. Because I think we all have to work in tandem together. And it's, we hear here in Texas a lot, it's, well, we got more important issues to deal with than your weed problem. Your little, you take your little single issue thing, go somewhere else. And it's like, you're, a lot of these people say that they've got their own little single issues, such as guns or abortions or voting. And I consistently started telling people when I got into this movement, I was like, this is not a single issue item. It is not. It is a multi-pronged, multi-faceted item that we need to be looking at because, man, just this one thing is going to actually solve a lot of issues we have going on. 
We have criminal justice reform. We have, so, and people hate this term, social justice reform. It's like we would see a lot of inequities removed if we even just move forward with any sort of simple program. So it's, it's criminal justice reform. It's that social justice reform. It is health care reform, given we have an opioid crisis. And heck, the DEA just released the other day saying, hey, guess what? Opioid addiction rates are down in places where we legalize. Isn't that beautiful? So I hey, that. So I say, like, hey, guess what? You know, if you have a fentanyl issue, it's likely because you ended and cracked down on opioids being prescribed, but didn't give them anything else to work with. Mm -hmm. And even you mentioned about like not being political. And I point out there's red states such as Florida and Oklahoma where even governor Ron DeSantis in Florida, when he got into office back in like 2018, 2019 goes, we have an opioid issue. And we know now we have enough information to know that bringing full flower into our market will help reduce the opioid crisis in our state. And it has, he was right. He's a, he's Correctly from that DEA announcement that you that you just referenced, it was like an average of 27% reduction in opioid use. And of course, this translates into Medicare and Medicaid costs and all of those things that we're, you know, and, and overall health, overall health, a, an herb that is that is good for you, as opposed to a highly refined, incredibly dangerous pharmaceutical drug. That is oh, that very is much so. I say, and I've always wondered, like, especially in Texas, I point out this, but I go, this sounds like a very conservative concept to move forward on. Even there's a joke in King of the Hill where um, there's kids on campus trying to get, they don't, they don't say it flat out, but they're like, hey, we well, you know we want to get this plant uh, legalized in Texas. And Hank's like, what plant? I don't understand. There's a plant that's illegal? Uh, wait, why? He goes, well, you see this plant called hemp. And it makes rope and it makes paper and it could be toilet paper. It could be the rope you, t you tie your animals with. It could be livestock feed. It's so versatile. And Hank's like, oh, my Lord, the government's done got into something it shouldn't be into trying to ban things. I can't stand it. The government overreaches like that. Being being all in, like pretty much anti-conservative about this type of stuff. This is Texas. He's like, I'll sign your petition. And he's signing. He goes, well, tell me, why is the state even bothered to, to outlaw this? And this kid goes, because it's basically marijuana and Hank like freaks out. <laughs> Social engineering that we are undoing such a effective, successful, special interest social engineering campaign that really started in 1930 when um, Henry Anslinger was appointed executive director of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which we now know as the Drug Enforcement Administration. Its initial origination was the FBN, Federal Bureau of Narcotics. And he went on a seven-year campaign, very concerted, yellow journalism, that movie Reefer Madness that we think of as a comedy, but it was not introduced to the American public as a no, comedy. No, it was not. <laughs> it was a tragedy and fear-mongering. And so anyway, all of that, and we're... We're undoing it and we are making our way to undo it. You know, I I also wanted to say I find that because I social justice, frankly, I'm obviously all about it. But I do like the term when we when we're talking about these things and, and you're using the term that is that folks are using, including legislators and regulators. So just as a maybe a Tai Chi of that, maybe we could start saying economic justice and and maybe we get a, a fresh look at it or a fresh understanding. I I was also wondering, what do you think about Ground Game Texas, that organization um, 
started by the the former city attorney of Austin and well, uh, Julie Oliver and Mike Siegel. Um, very very big fans that we worked with them to do the decriminalization efforts uh, out here. Um, I personally was going down just south of me to the town of San Marcos. Uh, was out on the campus there pushing to get people to sign the, the petition to pretty much have it on the ballot and then promoting mm-hmm. it as well. Um, a few people, a few of us had went up to Colleen that area and to push for Colleen and Harker Heights. Our executive director, Austin Zamhariri, he's up in, he's up near the Denton area in Texas. So he was up there at the university up there and knocking on doors, trying to get people to sign it. And it's amazing that, <laughs> oh, if you've, I don't know if it's made in the news there for you, but uh, the county where Colleen sits at, Bell County, Colleen went through and said, yeah, the only thing we're going to remove out of this ordinance is um, that the police can't use it. They couldn't use it as a reason to search. We're going to remove that out. We're still going to give them the reason to search. And part of the reason why was all the data they had on hand said every time we've actually done a search, it's led to... <laughs> us finding other things that really shouldn't be there. Like they were finding and mostly meth. with people of color. And they're like, we're finding things like meth, things of that nature. Whereas when they show, when we do find something that where we thought we were going to search and it's just a small personal amount, we don't find anything else. The pretty much the big time dealers were. And given it's a military town, obviously the military doesn't want their soldiers to be able to have a way to kind of skirt things and not get in trouble. But they put it through, and, and the county itself has a, we don't agree, and we're going to sue you now. We're going to sue you to remove this. The town where I worked at with, San Marcos, sits in Hayes County. The DA there for the county, his exiting motion was, I'm going to contact the state attorney general, Ken Paxton, and ask for his opinion on this. I want him to rule in whether or not these cities can do this or not. And it was... He, the guy, the last several elections has went, I'm not for this hemp stuff. I'm going to test everything. I'm, not even gonna, I'm just going to prosecute. I'm not going to try to say, oh, well, I don't know. And I don't want to spend the money. He was like, I'll wait. I'll, I'll spend the time. I'll spend the money. You're, we're going we're gonna to go through with this. And this last election, he stuck to that. And the other guy was like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I'm not wasting that money anymore. The city's already here talking about decriminalizing it in like almost 80% voted saying don't arrest and 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 mike siegel i mean what this man blows my mind he's a he's a municipal expert attorney former city attorney for a gigantic municipality in the state of texas so to hear these complete bunk nonsensical not based in reality your constitution law or any other ordinance exactly here and fight with mike siegel about how they want to undo the will of the voters who absolutely enshrined in your constitution and in and in, in the various adoptions of the of the different municipalities the absolutely the people can set policy and yes so can the city council etc etc but the people set policy and you don't undo it and man i wouldn't want to argue with mike siegel that memo that he wrote oh my god it absolutely (laughs) and and two days ago you probably saw the police chief from san marcos is making a big doesn't agree with the decriminalization well okay i don't agree with a lot of things either but you know i I look look that up because because he was in favor of this when it came out, like they were already, we didn't have as an ordinance, but we'd had it down. Was like we didn't, we wanted a site, we had a site and release program, and I fought with them for that as well to have that. And 
we got this police chief there and he was like, oh, I'm all for it. And it was like, wait, what? And he goes, I'm gaining so many man hours back for my officers by not having to deal with this nonsense. We can go deal with other things that are more pressing, such as assaults, people stealing catalytic converters. So <laughs> God, <laughs> we got other things to deal with and we're going to deal with those rather than weed. So I'm, I'm like, I got to go look this up because I'm, I'm going to be kind of surprised. He's like, I'm, I'm not on board for this. There's officers, the police union. Now they, they were not on board for this. They were, oh no, we got to do this. Crime's going to go up if you don't enforce yeah. these laws like this. No, okay. <laughs> I think probably crime will go down because you will be spending your energy on actual crime that where there's victims. No, stop with the victimless crimes already over a plant. <laughs> And the but funny you know, thing is, is, is people, if you think about it, it's going to look like crime has gone up because if you're focusing more of your attention on actual cr crimes, people really worry about those numbers are going to go up because you've caught more people involved in those things. They're going to go, well, look, uh, assaults went up and, and, and murders went up. And it's like, oh, we've actually been able to focus our attention on these things because there was ones that didn't get our attention and went through the cracks. It's like, we're, we're sealing the cracks up. Yes. Amen, brother. And, and, and having said that, actually, the data shows crime going down and, and youth access going down with legal, safe and legal access and robust regulatory, you know, frameworks. And I think the other part of that sort of gift that keeps on giving when you use that logic that you've laid out, which is then you can focus on actual crime with actual victims. Um, the other piece is when you don't, when you are focusing on the drug war, particularly again, plants, okay, if we're talking fentanyl, et cetera, um, but especially when we're talking plants, the double harm there is not only are we not giving our attention to crimes with victims, but we're giving our attention to victimless crimes that are severely disproportionately affecting people of color. And it just cannot be so. lost on us, yeah. I've, I put together, um, I had a project I had to do for my mass communications degree this last semester. And I just put a, a case for decriminalization and a whole section was, I was comparing our state to other states and the data showing like, what's the likelihood if you're a person of color to be arrested and like Texas is bad. Mm -hmm. And I was really, it blew my mind seeing some of the other states though, like Oklahoma, even with legalization, they are still, it's like, I think it was almost sevenfold. If you are a person of color, that you're going to get arrested. It's so true, and it's part of why I say we all we have to support other movements and dealing with racism, separatism, discrimination, and that level of ignorance. It, it's fundamental to a healthy, com thriving community. And so, yeah, we're going to have to work a little harder in certain spots and together we we can do it we just need to continue to link arms and engage in the process and activate ourselves and organize and i i can't tell you how thrilled and impressed i am with the cannabis community in in texas it, it just absolutely thank you it's my heart smile brother so any final thoughts you have as we wrap up this episode ah you know just i guess i'll just repeat 
how critical it is. We live in a beautiful system, no matter what state you're in. If you are a registered voter, you are going to be welcome at your state legislator's office, your senators, your 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 representative in, in the House, as well as at the federal and congressional level. They all have local offices, and you can certainly do a Zoom and a phone call in Washington, D.C. when they're there. But it is critical that we make our voices heard, and we make those appointments. And I think folks who don't understand just how awesome this, this system is, that that generally speaking, our elected officials, whether at the state level or the federal level, they are happy to hear from us. They understand they are there to serve constituents. Yes, there are horrible special interests, and we, we know many of, of those folks who they are, but they have a gaggle of aides, particularly at the federal level, and many of them who we don't agree with certain issues on, they're actually pro-cannabis. So make those appointments, use that voice. And there are wonderful talking points. Uh, by the way, if you're wanting to talk about hemp and CBD, you can go to hempsupporter.com and get great talking points for lobbying there. If we're talking about cannabis, you can go to normal.org and go to their lobbying page and get great talking points. And something tells me that the Lone Star Cannabis Collective is a huge wealth of, uh, of information. And so I just can't say enough. Join the amazing community that is building and ground swelling in Texas um, and use that voice and engage. And you'll find what friends and purpose and belonging. It's a great, incredible, thriving oh, yeah. movement. You'd be happy to hear. We just Wednesday went out to our capital. The Cannabis Collective did. Uh, four of us went to do our own personal action day and we, we passed out information about a house bill to reduce flower possession for the state to class C misdemeanor. So flower and some low level amount of concentrates to a misdemeanor here. Cause a lot beyond that seems to be a bridge too far for this state right now, but Great making work. that, that next step and starting it early on in the legislative session. So plug your website real quick. Thank you. Anybody who wants to find me, I have my Hemp Ace International is an expert witness legal support and consulting firm. It serves the global community founded in 2014. And I can be found at www.hempace.com, like the ace of spades or the ace of hemp, as it were, hempace.com. And my own podcast, it's been Hemp Barons for a couple of years. We're changing the branding to thejoyofhemp.com uh, and the Joy of Hemp podcast. So please stay tuned for that. Thank you for that opportunity and for everything that you do, Jesse and the Lone Star Cannabis Collective. We thank you for joining us this evening and spending your time with us. That is going to wrap it up for the Lone Star Collective podcast. I am your host, Jesse Williams. This has been quite the episode. Our guest was Joy Beckerman of Hemp Ace International. You can reach them at hempace.com. For more information, her podcast, Hemp Barons, which is at the Joy of Hemp, is going to be the new brand name for that. Recommend you check out that. And if you go back and look at her lower thirds, there's an Instagram account there that's been getting some posts and some traction lately check that out meet with them online in the social sphere we thank you for joining us this week we hope everybody has a great week and enjoys their weekend peace <laughs> <laughs>